welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast, where we talk about the intersection between faith and culture. I am your host, Josiah. And I'm your co-host, Byron. Byron, do you know how we have this new segment at the beginning of the show? Where, where we apologize for where something? Where we apologize. What do we do this time? Well, do you remember, you, you're the one that initially responded to what I said in Combat Chucks. Oh, good. So. It wasn't my fault. Okay. No. As long as it wasn't my problem. I can make fun of you. That's fine. Go ahead. What'd no, you do? I genuinely was concerned about his health. And I said, were you tested for gigantism? <laughs> and it was perceivably, um, I don't know, calloused of me to say that perhaps. So you had, <laughs> you reacted strongly like Josiah. Oh my, like you well, almost I mean, seemed embarrassed. Typically we try not to insult our guests on the podcast, but I mean, we've known Chuck since junior high, so he's probably cool with it. He's a good friend of ours, but I mean, I was, a lot of the people on our podcast I've never met, so if I said something like that, I would feel terrible because I don't know them personally. I've seen them online and I talked to them on the, oh, this way, but you know, you do you, I guess. I was legitimate. He said he was six feet at seven years old or something ridiculous like that. So I was legitimately concerned because that sounds to me like a medical issue. But he he <laughs> kind of answered and responded by saying God answered his prayers for him to stop growing, which again is an interesting thing I've never heard especially a guy ever say, Oh, I was so glad that I didn't get any taller. It's normally the opposite. That always happens. But anyways, he's a big dude though. He always has been. So I get why he would pray that pray for that. Well, so if it, if it came across as a calloused or rude that I was asking Chuck uh, about his perceivable gigantism, I am sorry. (laughs) So once again, we're going to start off this show, right? With, with our uh, well trademarked apology, we're sorry. Oh, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do the. <laughs> no, it's from thing. South Park, the BP episode where they act like, they act like BP didn't really care that they had a huge oil spill. Oh. That doesn't matter. Uh, we also have something else to apologize for, though. Uh oh, what? Um, what didn't we do last week or this week for us? Because currently this week, I have no idea. We didn't um... post an episode, Josiah. Oh yeah, sorry. About and it that. wasn't your fault or my fault, but. It was Snowmageddon's fault. Yeah, well, now I'm getting that now. But... Which is sharing is caring. We got 24 plus inches of snow in like two days and everything shut down because up in the Pacific Northwest, we don't know how to deal with that. Yeah, currently at my house, we've had about seven inches, but there's been more. I've seen over a foot in, in other parts of our area. And it's supposed to snow all day tomorrow, too. It, it just so... reminds me of that line from Die Hard, which is your favorite Christmas movie. Welcome to the party, pal. Yeah, that was uh, that was an appropriate gift to send me earlier this week. Thank it was you. it was accurate. Anyways, moving right along. <laughs> sorry to our listeners that we failed you. I blame Snowmageddon, and again, sorry to anyone that might have seen us as being or seen me as being callous towards those affected with gigantism. With that, we're gonna move right along to our sponsor. We are so legit. We have sponsors and stuff. Actually, if you we're stay professional, tuned, we might have real sponsors in the future. We're working on some stuff that could be pretty epic, but we'll find out. Regardless. It- this, <laughs> What? Is is our thing to always insult our sponsors? That's fine if that's our thing. Like I'm cool with it, but I mean it's we still seem that... to make fun of them more than we even advertise for them. It's, but whatever. It's definitely a I feel like a sellout sort of an issue. So it's more just well, especially with that sponsor, I get it. But yeah, I'm just kind of because this is what how many myself. episodes is this or tenth? Hey, double digits. Look at that. Look at that. Anyways, uh, if you're new to the show. We have a guest that comes on the show, and it's a different one each week. And like the podcast is called, the guest normally is a millennial pastor, where where we and we talk with them about stuff uh, specifically about being millennial, but also just about what they're doing 
as far as faith and how how that intersects with culture. And today's guest is Sophie Callahan. Sophie, can you hear us? I'm here. Hello, guys. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Sorry for anything we might say that's going to be offensive and that we'll have to apologize in next week's episode. We're going to get that out of the way. Already built in. All right. We're good. Because <laughs> we're that bad. We're, we're going to insult you in some way. Well, we do play a game <laughs> that's pretty <laughs> offensive. So, Anyway, Sophie, tell us real briefly um, a little bit about yourself. We're going to ask you your age, obviously, because this thing is called a millennial pastor. So you kind of have to prove you're a millennial. I don't know if you carry an ID that shows you are one or not. But then also tell us where you're at and just very briefly what you're doing. You bet. I am... 30 30 and flirty and thriving Mm. for fans of the movie 13 going on 30 uh i am currently living in palo alto california which is in the heart of silicon valley just south of san francisco and north of san jose and i pastor a community called the possibility project and we are a local church community but a sort of untraditional model of church Uh, we primarily right now host a residential internship for young adults. So I primarily work with millennials as well. Yes. Um, although probably crossing over into whatever the next generation is. Z. They haven't... Yes. Z. Okay. Generation Z. So I've got a mix of millennials and Gen Z folks in our community. And I also get to coordinate justice and compassionate ministries for the Northern California district oh. of the church of the Nazarene. So, so I'm part of the Naz group. Same here. So fun fact, Pew research, I think the cutoff for millennials, according to Pew research is 96. So if you're born after that, I guess you're Z or some people are saying Zen annual, which is just a whole lot of extra that I don't feel like dealing with. Oh Yeah. So <laughs> well, our group is mostly I think our like youngest resident is twenty two all the way up to mid thirties okay, so you do have kind of a mix of of two different generations a little bit a little bit so briefly um we we have an interesting connection i I guess uh, it's worth saying you went to high school <laughs> with my wife I did she's part of the reason I ended up at Point Loma which you know that yeah, which yeah. is where. We Crazy. all kind of got to know each other because we are all from the same uh, campus, whatever. What is that called when you're an alumni? We're all alumnuses. Is that We're all from... alumni. That's plural. Okay, alumni. cool. I didn't go to yeah. seminary, so that's just an ongoing thing. <laughs> I have to learn big words. But but yeah, so we you went, you went to high school with my wife and then you ended up going to Point Loma. Yes. What did I, you major in? I double majored oh, in sociology and philosophy theology which is only one major, just with two titles. Filthy. And I minored in Spanish, but I should really be better at Spanish before I start throwing that around. <laughs> we could do a, another Wait, quiz. Wait, you on... literally had two majors and a minor? Yeah. Ugh, I barely got out of there I in like four years school. with just one major. Jeez, I feel dumb. Well, you continued on beyond that, right? You have a master's as well? I did. I recently finished my master's of divinity. I went to the Candler School of Theology at Emory University. So, so once again, we have another master's degree holder. And once again, me and Byron are the least educated in the room. So I'm sure yep. you, because you know Brent, like I do, Sophie, we're a part of this cohort. And maybe we can talk about that later on in this podcast. Um, sure. 
you have to explain to us the big words you may or may not use because we didn't go to seminary. So we'll just warn you ahead of time. If there's something you say that's really fancy pants, we're going to say, hold up. Can you define that? So you go with that? I'm good with that. I'm not a big word person. I am more about the practical implications of our theology than the theological terms. But Oh, good. So you can dumb it point. down for us. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Speak to normal people. Uh. Yes, that's the goal. <laughs> Great. Well, if, if you've heard the show before, you know that we often like to prove how millennial you are with a game called How Millennial Are You? Part of this show is... We need uh, a theme song, by the way. Like a, a, like a 70s game show theme song for this segment. That can be your job since you confessed to everybody that you don't really do a whole lot but show up. Now, I'm, I'm going after some major money right now. I have two. Oh, my goodness. Two to three people I'm going to look work for for a sponsorship. And it's going to be great if it ever happens. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Regardless, we're, we're addressing stereotypes, as we like to say. Sometimes millennials get a bad rap. That's because we like to label things, but people have names. Our millennial today is named Sophie, but still, to illustrate the point of how unhelpful stereotypes might be and to just generally have fun with them, we're going to ask her a series of questions that she has not seen beforehand. Correct, Sophie? You don't know what we're going to ask you? I do not know, and I'm very curious. So, it's kind of a fun game. Some people, at the end of this, they basically say, wow, I really am a millennial. And others, because of these questions, like, well, maybe I'm not a millennial. But we'll get to that after and we'll see how you scored so are you ready byron let's do it are you ready sophie i'm in okay sorry if we offend you sophie in general how self-entitled and lazy are you oh man (laughs) (laughs) is it good start well yeah i don't think i'm that (laughs) self-entitled or lazy i i i realize that i'm privileged so that I probably rank high on that scale, but I would say a medium to low on the self-entitled and lazy. So just, just to clarify, just a little footnote, most of these are pulled from actual news headlines. Yeah. Um, I love it. Yeah. And, and also just personal experience and what warrants personal experience is if it happens more than one time with different people. So this isn't just out of nowhere, but anyway, so low to middle, low to medium self-entitled. Lazy. Okay, cool. Go Byron. All right. How often do you order avocado on toast? <laughs> I made it for myself today. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> we finally got the Holy Grail. I don't think anyone's done that yet. Oh, that's so good. I really do love avocado toast. And I live in California, so <laughs> avocados are available at a good price. And also my local coffee shop makes a really good avocado toast. So I'm just I'm full on fully on board on that stereotype. Okay, so speaking of your local, local coffee shop, how much time do you spend there with your avocado and toast drinking coffee? Ooh, not that often. Maybe once a week or every other week um, just to get out of the house since I kind of work from home. Though it is like a trendy new wave pour over coffee shop. So absolutely I, it I is. I hit that stereotype too. It spills so- coffee and I love it. So for funsies, just just to add what this kind of headline was about, we spend more on coffee than on our retirement as a generation. So that's fun. Ooh, not me. My retirement account is much larger than my coffee budget. Thank goodness. (laughs) 
Well done. Well, you're smarter than most of us then. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Dad, for (laughs) instilling that value in me early and for not liking coffee. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What was the last coffee you ordered and took a picture of and then posted on social media? (laughs) Ooh, it's been a long time since I've posted a coffee on social media. We could also open it up to food too. Like if it was, if you do more food than coffee, then that would work as well. Yeah. But. I think I posted an avocado toast on my Instagram this week. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I've never keep done fulfilling that. that stereotype for you. I've, I've never taken a picture of my food and posted it on social media. So I think this is great. At least it went to the Instagram story and not the Instagram feed. Like it was just like a, imperfect whatever photo not like look how beautiful my food is i'm gonna preserve this forever so people had to like go out of their way to see your picture you weren't necessarily forcing them to see it i get it yeah awesome all right next question shifting from food do you use or sell essential oils Ooh, definitely do not sell them but Yes, I definitely use them. It's so <laughs> radically. I wouldn't say I'm obsessed, but I have a small collection to make my house smell better. What does small mean? Like, give us a number here. Like, eight or nine. I, I don't actually know if that's small. I guess that probably is small. I feel, well, sometimes so, they so sell boxes you... of, like, 50 of them. Oh, so do you, so. you said you use them to make your house smell nice? Is yes. that what you... Pro- so you're not, like, taking them for, like, oh, my toe hurts. I'm going to put this oil on my head because that's somehow going to help. Sometimes, but not very often. I have it in some of my, like, body products, but it's mostly for the good smells. Fair enough. Um, Okay, so how many participation trophies do you own, and then how many of those are currently on display in your home? I can't remember if I have any participation trophies, which maybe just shows that I didn't participate in that many group activities. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure I got some for like the one or two years I played soccer, but definitely none are on display. Fair enough. Man, that's a swing and a miss. We're doing so good with the avocado stuff. All right. This next one might be good, though. I'm I'm hopeful. Yeah, this is – we'll see. This is a new one. How often do you angry tweet companies when they screw up or run a promotion you don't like? I guess that's been going on lately with some Chipotle queso issues. Well, that would be an example would be Chipotle queso. It wasn't as good as people were hoping. And so everyone threw a huge fit about it. Stuff like that. Oh, that queso was really disappointing. I tried it once and I never (laughs) ordered it again. Did you angry tweet about it? I did not angry tweet. I'm more likely to angry tweet about politics, but that backfired. And so I stopped angry tweeting in general. (laughs) So that's another swing and a miss. Bummer. So you you learned a lesson. That's okay. Yeah. (laughs) All right. All right. Um, How many selfies have you taken this week? And we'll count Hmm. the last seven days. Less than five. I don't know. Is that a lot? I don't know. Honestly. I mean, I've taken one this week, but it was for to prove a point today to Josiah and another friend of ours. Um, and that was the only one I've taken this year. But I don't take a lot of pictures of myself. So yeah. I, I take very few. But I know people who take literally 15 a day. So I don't think five's terrible. I think you're all right there. Yeah, I, I'm never taking selfies because I think I look cute or, like, want that photo. 
they're usually because I think my cat is cute and he's cuddling on my lap and I want the photo of my cat. I do the That's same thing. Fair. I do the same thing when children are acting a certain way and then yeah. they're going to stop the moment you turn a camera towards them. So you have to fool them at into looking at your phone so you can get a picture real quick. It's a little yeah. uh, parenting hack that I have learned. But then they decide they want to run around taking pictures of everything. And one time, my daughter took a 30-minute video on my wife's phone. And my wife's oh. phone literally was about to, like, no, nah, I can't be on because there's no memory left. So she had to do a lot of <laughs> deleting of stuff. It's pretty great. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Five? That sounds reasonable. Sounds good to me. I don't know. We're just the most uh, self-indulged generation, according to some. So Yeah, I think I take less than the average millennial, for sure. What I think is great, though, they call us very self-absorbed, but we've never called ourselves the greatest generation. But somebody else <laughs> called themselves that, so that's fun. <laughs> Byron's, that's going to be our apology next week. Um, so next, because <laughs> they're listening. Sorry, veterans. I think we're good. I mean, I'm not saying they didn't do some good things. I'm just saying, who calls themselves the greatest? If you are an athlete and you say you're the greatest, people think you're arrogant. That's all you get. You get hate for that. Or, so, or right. Saying. Or right. There's some athletes that say that and people are like, yeah, they're kind of right. But anyways. no, even even if they're right, they're still considered arrogant. So, yeah. I mean, that's just an arrogant thing to say. I suppose that's all right. I'm saying. May, we'll see if this makes I'm not our... saying that they're a bad generation. I'm just saying we'll see if this makes our... to call yourselves that. This might make the apology roll. We'll see. Next question. If we get any hate for that, I will apologize. No problem. <laughs> I will I will suck it up next week. No problem. Okay, Sophie, this one <laughs> I picked and I picked for you because we had a fun conversation once and I feel like you're like me because this is totally me. Um, do you know how to write a physical check? Absolutely. I did it this week. No. Yeah. Oh, swing and a miss. <laughs> you were talking about Venmo or something, you know, digital oh, yeah. cash sharing and like, oh, surely she doesn't do anything with like analog okay, money. But what was it for though? Oh, maybe this is a good plug. It was for the Mentoring for Ministry program at the Center <laughs> for Pastoral Leadership. <laughs> uh, for thank- some reason, NTS requires that you pay things by check. And so I had what? to write a check. That's yeah. ridiculous. See, I, I'm mostly I hear people say they're out of check for rent. That's like the only check I've ever really written in my life is yeah. consistently for rent, like as an adult. But I don't think I've ever like I've never done it at a grocery store. No. I've never done it anywhere else. I honestly don't think I've ever done it anywhere else besides rent. Okay, so. these, these are my confessions. Are you guys ready? Once a week, I have to write a check to my babysitter because that's just how that works that's what she requests and every week i have to remind myself how to do it even though i literally do it every week i have to reread what each line says like okay (laughs) what goes where again okay her name okay not my name her name okay cool and then what okay that's what i put here and then i have to spell out the the i literally have to go through this like josiah you have done this before how did you already forget it's only been a week so i unfortunately write checks weekly and i still feel like i don't know how to do it See, I my biggest de- fear is misspelling a name. That's what I screw up. But I deposit all my checks digitally. Yes, yeah, so, so, so does it's so does my wife. It's been a long time since I've actually taken a check to a bank. Absolutely. All right, all right. last last question. question. And this, this is one of my favorites. This kind of goes into what we were just talking about. It's great. Do you watch YouTube videos to learn how to adult? Or have you ever? You don't have to do it consistently, but Hmm. I'm trying to think of one that I have watched. The the answer is probably yes. I honestly probably Google how to adult things more than I watch videos specifically. I 
I have to search a lot. Um, oh, <laughs> what's the most recent? Of... Yeah, what's the most recent thing you searched? Then that's that's curious. Um, probably something pregnancy related. Since I'm currently pregnant, I was probably looking up medical information that I didn't know. That's amazing. Well, so that, that seems super valid, adult. though. But it like, is, yeah. But it's adulting. I know nothing about being pregnant or bringing a child into this world, so I feel like well, I'm learning I mean, this season of adulting thanks to Google. But you got to learn that stuff the first time when you do it the first time. So I mean, that makes sense. But not so, every generation has had the internet to teach them how to. Oh yeah, well that's parent. why we have so much misinformation. Like you have like yeah. old wives' tales and things get passed down, and then people do things that are very dangerous for themselves. And their bodies, and they go, oh, well, that's just what I was told. Now we can actually, like, maybe sift through some of that. Yeah. So that's kind of helpful. We were going to ask you, but then we realized it's probably, I mean, every time we have a male, there's a stereotype that millennials all have beards. And so it's always, have you watched YouTube to learn how to shape your beard? And almost without exception, even some of the guys that don't have beards have watched YouTube to figure out how to sculpt their beard. And by the guys who don't have beards, he means the guy who hasn't had a beard on this show because there's only been one. He has one now, though. That's what's Good ironic. for him. I'm proud of him. Yeah, but anyways, <laughs> that's that's a very common stereotype for guys, maybe. Maybe we need to expand hmm. it to, to just Google. Do you ever Google to learn how to adult? Because maybe we just watch YouTube more than women do. Yeah. I don't know. It's curious. I mean, there are definitely beauty tutorials out there and i don't think i've ever watched one of those for like yeah. how to contour my makeup that's way too much work, yeah so. makeup and hair it's Hard all pass. over that kind of stuff so yeah i i mean i watch the ones where they like burn their hair off and they flip out that's kind of funny oh yeah those are great i love fail videos <laughs> <laughs> brilliant okay we found I definitely it laugh at people falling down <laughs> that's real hard. America's, that's, that's not educational though no. But it's good. It's there's fun. a lesson to be learned, though. I think it is a valid lesson. Don't do that thing that person did. All right. So I don't know. How millennial do you think you are, Sophie? I think I'm fairly millennial, but capable of handling my adult life. <laughs> You're not a helpless adult who is basically no. a child in an adult body who doesn't know how to do anything and is entitled and lazy. I don't feel that I submit to that stereotype. No. But you super dig that avocado. But again, like I you said, really do. you're in California. It kind of makes sense. Yeah, I didn't eat avocado toast when I lived in Georgia. But out here, yeah, all the time. <laughs> you can literally, well, maybe not where you're at, but where, where I used to live in Central Cal, I, could, I had an avocado tree in my backyard. It was like manna from heaven. It was great. I've tried to make friends with neighbors that have avocados. Two varying degrees of success. <laughs> yeah. But I also definitely can't afford to buy a house in this region. So it's not like it's harming my ability to afford a mortgage because that's just so far out of the question. So Seriously. I'll stick with enjoying the avocado toast. Yeah. I mean, narrow, narrow the focus a little bit to things that, that are healthy and that, well, I guess for our purposes, fit a stereotype. So that's good. Yeah. So, Sophie, since we like to have fun with stereotypes, we're going to continue that conversation in maybe a more serious way by asking you about some of your ministry experience and then also about your church. Uh, if you would look at any research, particularly Barna, they do a lot in this vein um, with millennials and Gen Z. They would say that about 60 percent of millennials just up and left the church. And, you know, it wasn't all at the same time, but at the coming of age at about 18 
they, they start to leave the church. And it's perhaps the first time I'm having a hard time finding research on this because it's just recently they've really been researching this. But it may be the first time in recent history that in this country, a majority of a generation left the church. That might be the first time that has happened. So you're kind of maybe you're an avocado loving millennial, but you're also breaking the mold in a really unique way because you want to actually be a part of this thing that so many decided they don't have nothing to do with. So tell us a little bit about just getting into ministry and what you're doing now. Sure. I think my own journey into the church is maybe a little different, which is partially, sorry, why I've stayed. Um, Because I grew up Catholic and my family attended the church. And then when I moved between Minnesota and Arizona, I ended up at a youth group with a friend that was not Catholic. And when you're 12, you don't really know the difference between a Catholic church and an evangelical church plant um, because both of them met in schools. (laughs) And so I found my way in um, to the church um, in a new season and then kind of continued on that journey on my own. So I went to church without my family for a long time. Uh, They attended a different church than I did. So I feel like I was always really committed uh, to the church. It wasn't forced upon me or expected of me. I think all my family is probably very surprised that I'm working in ministry, uh, though very supportive. So, yes, I found my way um, from the Catholic church to a non-denominational church. And then when I attended Point Loma Nazarene University, I had no idea what Nazarene meant, but I started volunteering in a youth ministry and step-by-step just found myself more and more invested in the work of the local church. And that's how now I ended up um, on the path towards ordination as a pastor. So are you ordained yet? I am not. I have one more year of um, experience to get under my belt and then I'm eligible for ordination in 2020, Lord willing. So we ask every one of our guests to kind of describe or define this thing we're going to talk about, church, because it's kind of central to what a faith community is, I suppose. And it also is how faith communities maybe try to engage culture is, is through that. But you, you also have a very unique church. So um, maybe using what you're doing now as inspiration, how would you, in your own words, describe this word church or define it? For me, there are so many rich metaphors and ways of talking about the church. And one that I just keep coming back to is the body of Christ, that we are the gathered people of God um, in the name of Jesus Christ. And that for me really shows that the church is not about the building, but about the people. And that's a pretty common uh, refrain that people say, but because I work with a church community that has no technical building, I see how often people still think that the church is a building or a Sunday morning worship service because they often don't have parameters or understandings for what we're doing as a community. And so we are uh, a gathered community. We meet in homes. We meet in a garage. uh, We meet in living rooms. We work with partner churches that have traditional buildings. Um, We don't feel limited by our small community, we partner with all kinds of other 
um, churches and houses of worship and congregations and people who believe in Jesus and people who don't. Um, but all of our work is aimed around being the body of Christ in the world to be representing Jesus in everything that we do, not just where we attend for a worship service. And so for me, the church is the body of Christ because we are representatives of the mission of Jesus, the love of Jesus in the world by how we live. And that gets played out by how our bodies participate um, in this world. And there's just, I feel like I could just go on and on about the levels of the body of Christ metaphors, but I'll just stick to that as my core image. Well, a little plug. Um, and then I, I gotta, you know, we're going to ask you some more questions just for our listeners. Sophie is going to post a little bit more about herself and I, I'm going to hope she's also going to tell us maybe in more detail what the possibility project really looks like and what those different levels might be. So stay tuned later on in the week. I could ask you hours worth of questions on the very thing as well, because it is so creative and it just makes me think of so many things that I'd like to ask you, but we're going to try to stay on task today and, and move to the next question real quick. And the natural question we ask every one of our guests because they're millennials, because of the research, why haven't you left the church? I haven't left the church because I desire to be part of a bigger story than just myself. And I find that larger narrative of the gospel compelling, uh, regardless of how much the church in all of its um, imperfect people living this out, like the church has failed to be a credible witness, I think, of the gospel. Um, but I'm still hopeful that that gospel message and that that larger story is something worth participating in. It gives my life meaning and orientation and purpose. And I think there's a lot of ways to participate in that narrative that don't, again, that don't look like showing up for a Sunday morning worship service alone, um, but invite us to bring our whole lives into worship. And the church is the place that forms me and shapes me and how to do that. So you're already kind of touching on one of the next questions I was going to ask you about what are things that might need fixing? Um, maybe that we're not being the best representatives of, of this gospel message of who Jesus has called us to be. But maybe give us one thing before we talk more about what needs fixing. Give us one thing that is just the first thing that comes to mind. What do you love most about the church if you haven't already kind of addressed that? I love that the church has the potential to bring me into community with so many people that are really different from myself. That if I'm participating in the church with my whole self, then I should expect to come into contact with people that have different stories than I do, that have different experiences and perspectives and ways of life than I do. And that's not just in the local church, um, like who I join with in worship, but that's the global body of Christ and um, multiple denominations and people who gather and, and represent so many different stories and that we have something in common when we say that we're part of the church. And so there's a starting point uh, for that relationship, but that I should be transformed by other people who claim to be part of the church. It's kind of like what Paul's talking about when he writes to the, I think it's the church in Corinth where he's talking about the unity and the diversity um, of the body of Christ so that we all have different roles, but together we're something greater than we could be alone. So absolutely. So, you're already alluding to some of the maybe maybe we don't 
have the best representation. Maybe we are not living up to that image as well. Um, me and Byron shared a lot of our grievances, a lot of the things that we're frustrated with in our very first uh, podcast, things that we've just kind of got hangups with, with the church. But we've also shared how those are sort of the things that have driven us to maybe engage more fully. So instead of sitting on the sideline and point fingers and say, this is what the church is doing wrong. Uh, we've tried to kind of frame it in a, this is what we're trying to do about it. This is a problem and this is what we're working towards. So um, you kind of already alluded to maybe some of the things that the church does that could very well be the, the reasons that some of our generation has disengaged uh, from the church fully. But, but do you see things that, that really irk you? Are there things that you've heard people tell you, things that you're, are kind of your maybe passion projects? This is the thing that, that I'm just driven to go and, and do something about, or this is what we need to talk about more. Like what, what is it that makes Sophie driven uh, as, it, as it pertains to your calling and being a pastor in the church? Absolutely. I think uh, the best critique is a better practice. And so for me, all the things that I would critique the most in the church are what drive me to offer something different, um, that if I'm going to critique something, but also remain within the church, then I want to offer another alternative. And I think that the church has done a poor job of being a representation of Christ uh, in the world, that our witness has been uh, just kind of pathetic to the fullness and abundance of life that, that Christ calls us to. And that we don't offer a lot of ways of practicing a different way of living that we as the church don't embody an alternative ethic that we really look just like the rest of the people around us. And so it's not a compelling reason to come be a part of the church or to join in something different. Um, because our lives don't look that different um, in, in a hopeful way. You know, I'm not saying we should, uh, yeah, reject everything in culture or seclude ourselves or that kind of looking different. But, but as a church, we've done a really poor job of, of calling out and living differently around issues like racism and consumerism and violence. And I think that part of it um, the, the problem I see and what drives me to live differently within the church is that we have done a really poor job, especially within evangelical circles, of seeing the communal nature of our sin and brokenness and offering a different way of living. We've focused so much on individual sin or um, actions, and then it becomes about behavior management um, like no dancing, drinking, gambling, <laughs> like those kinds of like personal okay. moral failures. Okay. <laughs> instead pause. of communal sin. Pause on the serious. Yeah. Do you remember the Nasbo rap? Oh, I can probably say the whole thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> don't dance, don't skate, no silver screens. All about those Nasbo no nos. Sorry, yep. if you're not if you're not Nazarene, that has been very formative in this. But you can look at it though. It's called the Nasbo rap. Um you can see Josiah look ridiculous. You can. I actually and, think it's been removed from the internet. Oh no! I'm, call, I'm calling Blake the second we're done with this. I'm getting it back on the internet somewhere. Oh, I'm no. making that happen. 
Anyway, sorry, yes. we're interrupting you actually giving us some really awesome... <laughs> yeah, something some... important. We were interrupting <laughs> something important for something stupid. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's fair. I mean, the reason that a video um, can poke fun of Christians um, is because Christians become really known for this, like, moral policing, but we aren't known for standing up against actual social evils. And to me, that's a huge failure to live out the kingdom of God here on earth. So you you said something about, I think you said, you called it communal sins, um, and you mm-hmm. listed a number of those. And so I, I don't know, we can pick one of those and um, talk a little bit more at, at length about it. But before we do, I, I guess I have a, a, a precursor question to that. Um, so often we get drawn into fruitless debates, uh, at least th- this has been my experience, so curious if this is your experience as well so say you're going to talk about something like racism say you're going to talk about something like consumerism or you know you're going to talk about being better um stewards of our environment or whatever Mm -hmm. depending on who the conversation is with you suddenly find yourself again just like we're poking fun with during the stereotyping uh being cast as one one side or the other in the political paradigm based on your your uh, thoughts about that and so so oftentimes this typecasting this assumption this labeling just almost immediately destroys any real meaningful conversation that could take place because uh i and maybe it's because i don't do it right i don't know um maybe i'm immediately written off because oh that's just a liberal thing or oh that's just a conservative thing like no i'm trying to tell you it's a jesus thing so maybe i'm communicating it wrong but i'm curious does that happen to you as well if this is your kind of passion thing do people have some of those reactions to you as well. Oh, absolutely. And I think that part of the challenge is the church has failed to speak against the partisan politics of our country, especially, um, and to offer an alternative way to say this really isn't about what political party you belong to, but this is kingdom of God living. And this is a theological conversation that plays out in how we live in the world. And I think that part of the challenge is personally, I have to embody a different way of living in order to ever have any of these conversations in a credible manner. And so I have to change my own perspectives and my own practices in order to have any of these conversations authentically with people and to just point back to scripture and to say, what I'm really trying to do is make my whole life worshipful to make everything I'm a part of or everything my church is a part of an act of worship, that it's more than just singing songs or prayers or listening to a sermon, but it's also about how I spend my money and who sits at my table and how I spend my time and my resources. What, um, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but I just think that everything in our lives can be an act of worship. And so trying to have some of these conversations with people when they want to steer it into a political realm, I just try and pull it back to theology and practice. But I okay, think so- you're right. I often, Oh, go ahead. No, you finish what you're going to say. Sorry. I, I often think that when I talk about issues of faith and justice and wanting to integrate that and in how we live our lives, people go like, Oh, sweet Sophie. That's her passion project. Or that's what she's interested in. <laughs> oh, that's cute. Sophie. Yeah. That's real cute. Like good for you. As it, as if I was like interested in physics and they're like, Oh, good for you. But I'm an English teacher, you know, like we can pick our, 
are topics of interest. And for me, I'm saying, no, this is the holistic gospel message. This isn't optional for Christians. This is what we're all called to just in different ways. Well, it's just like you were alluding to. I mean, you were talking about how we're so individually focused on kind of the symptomatic nature of behavior modification. So we poked fun at it, but it's, it's, it's a significant portion of what I feel the church has tried to do um, over the past, you know, hundred years or, or more, um, probably a lot longer than that, but what is affecting the church today, you know, it's probably a thing that's been going on for, for a while in this country and as evidenced by just the don't dance, that's not Christian. Don't do this. That's not Christian. Don't do that. That's not. And it's just this symptomatic behavior modification instead of exactly what you're talking about, the holistic nature of, you know, the transformative power of grace and what it means to fully embody a gospel minded living. So for me, though, the question becomes, how do you start to navigate? What does it look like to have those theological conversations about very practical things? What let's pick. You, you said racism, consumer, let's pick consumerism because we, uh, we talked a little bit with one of our last guests, Latia, about racism, but I don't think we've talked about consumerism very much yet. So, so expand on that a little bit. What does that look like to start kind of maybe preaching about it or talking to people about it? And then what does that look like living it out uh, in response to what you feel Jesus has called you to do based on what you read in the Bible? Absolutely. I mean, none of us can escape the fact that we live in a consumer culture. But how do we engage the culture in which we are placed from a Christian perspective? And so I'm going to need to wear clothing. Like, that's a guarantee. Um, <laughs> There's some legal ramifications. Well, actually, yeah. I don't know. Are there where you live? Can you, is your city code allow you to walk around without clothes, actually? I've never checked it out, and I don't want to test the boundaries myself. <laughs> But I'm going to stick with, I need to wear clothes. That's fair. We, me and Byron know we need to wear clothes. So we, we, uh, we empathize with that law. Yeah. <laughs> so we all, we all have to get dressed in the morning. How can getting dressed be an act of worship? Well, if I think about what all takes place in getting my clothes to me, there are so many systems at work. And a lot of those systems are really broken systems that keep people in poverty, that create a lot of environmental waste, that are exploitative of people and the environment. And so I, as a follower of Jesus, who've been called to love my neighbor as myself, should be concerned about who is making my clothes and should be concerned about the impact on creation based on what I'm purchasing and using. And so for me, it's a very simple theological idea that I want to love my neighbor as myself and that I want to participate in the kingdom of God on earth and the work that God is doing to redeem all of creation and has invited me into that. And I get to step into that redemptive work simply by bringing more attention and consideration to where my clothes come from. But isn't, now, it, just, isn't it just easier to buy stuff at Walmart, though? Oh, it's way easier to buy stuff at Walmart, but is I'm the just Christian gonna... life an easy call? I'm just going to play not. devil's advocate with you. I'm just going to have to Please. play devil's advocate. Please do, because that's the kind of pushback that people rightly bring up when you try to have some of these conversations within the church. So there's something so... to there's something to the the this goes beyond the symptom because the symptom is well, clothes are expensive, so I just don't want to think about how 
you know, my shoes might've been sewn together by child labor. I would rather just know that they're $20 and I can buy them and wear them. So what there's a disconnect there that seems to be kind of somehow for me connected to that. We just focus on symptoms and behavior modification. And then once we have affected or changed the behavior, then we're like, Oh, your soul is secure now. Now just wait until you get to retire from the planet and maybe don't try to get too bogged down by the ick that's happening here. There's almost this sort of escapist mentality that I, I see with some of these conversations, particularly with the, oh, well, Walmart's cheaper. Who cares? Right. If all the church is forming me to consider is my individual soul and the souls of other people around me, that that's what the gospel is saying then why would I care about the bodies of the people that made my clothing? But if the gospel is also about becoming the body of Christ in the world, then I have to think that the bodies of other people in the body of Christ and around the world also matter to God and also should affect how I live my life as a part of the body of Christ. It says in first Corinthians that if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer And if one part rejoices, we all rejoice. So I have to try intentionally to see the connections and to see those systems between me and the person making my clothing that it would be easier to not consider it. But I think it's the Christian practice of attentiveness to consider the bigger systems. And that's where our church is failing us when we only talk about individual sin and not communal sin and the brokenness of the systems around us but the power of the gospel to speak redemption into those systems too so practically speaking then i'm gonna i'm gonna get detailed with you for a second because i don't know i don't know what's available to me or to byron um i know where byron lives yeah he he's living where we grew up but so what's what's the option do you go and buy secondhand clothing do you go and find that it's made in sweatshop free certified do you i mean what are the what are the next step things for a person that's maybe grappling with this stuff to maybe have the holistic view of, Hey, you know what? My actions absolutely affect other human lives. And I have to, I have to care about that if I'm going to say I'm following Jesus. Absolutely. I think the practical steps are super important, but I think, but if we don't consider the narrative behind it all, then we'll give up on the practical steps when they become too difficult So we have to start with this understanding of our interconnectedness as the body of Christ and our invitation to participate in the kingdom of God on earth and that everything we do can be worshipful. And I think cultivating that within ourselves as followers of Christ undergirds all the practical steps that we do because otherwise we give up. But happy to talk about some practical steps because otherwise we get overwhelmed as well and we're not willing to to even try let let's save the practical to to the end because i actually have another question real quick um okay is i feel like i get stereotyped as this as a pastor and it's nothing to do with being a millennial but maybe it does i don't know i guess i should ask some of my seasoned saints if this is like a millennial perception they have about me um i'm often kind of apologizing for ruining things so so advent comes up and i i basically share hey we should ask ourselves the, the question, does Christmas still change the world? And people look at me funny, like, why would we ask that? Like, because Christmas was this marked event in history that changed the world. But if we make it all about consumeristic tendencies and what did I get? And I like this, so let's do that. 
then we see the evidence of that, especially in this country. I think the figure I last saw is something ridiculous, like Americans spend $650 billion at Christmas time or something just astronomical. Yeah. And And how much would it take to... Uh, like get rid of slave labor in the world exactly well (laughs) way less than that (laughs) one of the figures said something really i mean it was just uh, less than a percent of that could be used to deliver clean drinking water to the entire world like less than a percent and so i guess not to to spend too much time begrudging christmas because we already know that as millennials we ruin christmas um so i guess i'm fitting that stereotype but when you talk about this thing, these things, uh, particularly in the circles you talk about it, is there a pushback that you're just kind of the Debbie Downer? It's like, you know what? I like ignorance is blissful. I, I don't want to know about it. It's easier to not think about it. Sure. I, I try really hard not to make other people feel guilty for the ways that they are living their life, but to offer an invitation into something different. There are so many ways in which I am failing miserably at practicing this alternative ethic of Christ. But I think that progress, not perfection, is the goal. Uh, And I think that's a theological move as well. None of us are expected to be perfect among first, like, acceptance of Jesus into our hearts. Like, we are invited into a journey of transformation more and more and more into the likeness of Christ over our lives. And then if we continue to submit ourselves to God, that God will continue to reveal new ways to us that we can be transformed. And so we all start this journey somewhere um, of learning to practice our faith in particular ways. And it's not going to look the same for everyone either. So I, sure, people accuse me of ruining things or I think feel guilty when they're around me (laughs) and like I pull out my reusable knife and fork and they're using plastic ones and I say (laughs) hey no problem that's what I was doing too until a year ago when someone told me about a travel set of utensils and I thought I can do that and I got a travel set of utensils and so I think just continually offering grace to people and then offering invitation as well but to follow up on your Christmas example I think instead of ruining Christmas What a beautiful opportunity to use our liturgical calendar and our Christian holidays and important movements of ways of inviting people into this way of practicing faith to say Advent and Christmas could actually be so meaningful and transformational if we were to engage it on more than just a consumer level. It's not ruining Christmas for me. It's bringing so much more meaning and Christ-likeness into our celebration of a holiday like that. The downer, though, the, what I was alluding to is the downer of we just want to talk about Jesus being born and don't, don't bring in real stuff in the conversation. We don't need to yeah. know how much the United <laughs> – we don't want to know how much the U.S. spent at Christmas. That's, that's ruining things because there's the – I don't know. The, I don't want to think about it because it's hard. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a culture of apathy and ignorance within the church. And I think that's what's something great about millennials is we're actually trying to counteract that in a lot of ways. I think that apathy and ignorance is not helping the church's witness and is not helping people stay in the church because people see the church as hypocritical and just self-centered and self-focused. And so that might exist, but... I'm not going to say that that's okay. I think that that's a failure of the church to counteract that. 
So then the practical steps, if me and Byron want to go buy shoes, or maybe me and Byron want to go consider getting, I don't know, a new t-shirt that doesn't, I don't know if you heard, I bought Byron a Christmas present and it was just my face <laughs> ironed on to the front of a t-shirt. I don't think I checked if it was like sweatshop free shirt because I absolutely am pretty sure I bought it at Walmart. But let's say I don't want to do that. What do I do? What, how do I start maybe really asking questions, looking for, you know, uh, retailers that have reputations that, you know, value human life or I don't, I don't know. Where does that, yeah. where do we go next with that stuff? Well, I will say one of my dreams is that the church would be a better resource for these kinds of conversations. And so um, I know that Nazarene Compassionate Ministries has a lot of resources on their website that uh, myself and some friends are really interested in developing more accessible resources for these kinds of conversations. But it really depends on um, what's accessible to you um, physically, financially, um, convenience wise, things like that. You're never going to get a perfect option, but I do think you can consider what's available to you and within your means that is a better choice than some others. So one thing to do is to learn about different brands and companies and their social responsibility. Uh, a great resource for this is called the better world shopper. They have an app. It's not super user-friendly, unfortunately, but it's there. And they have a website and a little book. And that's a really great way um, to start. And it does ruin some things. You're like, oh, my gosh, I can't eat Kraft macaroni and cheese anymore. <laughs> because you realize Kraft is a super unethical company. They don't even but... sell it in Europe, I guess. Like, the European Union won't allow it to be sold in grocery stores over there. Oh, yeah. Europe has way more restrictions around um, what products are, are good for people in the environment than we than we have over here. Yep. So um, so learning about what companies to avoid, but also what companies are better to support. And for me, that makes spending my money a more worshipful act is to put my money towards companies that are trying to make a positive impact in the world. And so basically, do we need to brace ourselves? We might have to spend a little more. I will say that for those who have the means that this becomes um, an act of generosity and giving and Christlikeness to spend more on some of our project products, knowing that people and the environment are being treated better because of it. However, that's not a financial reality for a lot of people. And so I'm not going to make a prescriptive uh, judgment of what everyone has to do because then we're offering alternatives that are only available to people with privilege. And that's not standing in solidarity with our brothers and sisters who live in legitimate poverty and need other options. So it's a matter of evaluating what kind of resources do you have? Um, but if you're going to spend five more dollars on a shirt and you would end up spending five more dollars on a cup of coffee or something else anyway, why not make some more ethical choices? So that's one thing. Um, but I think there's a lot of op opportunities that are actually cost saving as well. Um, shopping secondhand, doing clothing swaps with friends, buying less overall, like really evaluating our wants and our needs and making things ourselves. And all of those can be more ethical, but also cost efficient. I think it's it's very, very much a, a conversation about evaluating priorities and what's important in life. 
because if if uh and this was where i see culture in a very subtle way affecting the church in a negative it's if our number one priority is um low cost living or getting the best deal then that's a very self-focused thing but that's also kind of just how we do stuff so this is really this is really a countercultural shift that's going to be very difficult particularly for us in this country i can tell a very brief story and i'm this is kind of a hey have fun if you're going to try to do this we tried it we aren't currently doing it so i'm not i'm not very i'm doing a bad job of living this this life as well but one of the things we try to do and we just sat there and like what's important what do we need to do we have we're going to have four kids and diapers are crazy expensive and they don't degrade they just sit in landfills the things Forever. that are the things that are in diapers they just capture that moisture and never go away they literally just they'll never go away they're indestructible it's crazy um so we did cloth diapers for a period of time with every one of our kids now some misno some some things that I'll say about that you can't always do cloth diapers if they have crazy diaper rashes and you need the actual good diaper rash cream because there's only so many diaper rash creams you can use um, with cloth diapers because they'll build a film up on the actual diaper and then it no longer becomes diapery, which means it just doesn't absorb, absorb the, the, you know, whatever the kid's depositing into it. But you really come to terms very quickly with how convicted you are to live this lifestyle when you're scraping poop out of a kid's diaper into your toilet and then throwing it in your washing machine. Like that becomes a real, okay, how important is this to me? So maybe that's where we have to kind of end this is what is the most important thing? Because if the most important thing is doing things within our means that, that value other human life, then sometimes, I don't know, does it maybe look like scraping poop out of a kid's cloth diaper? I don't know. I will join you in that practice in about four months. <laughs> <laughs> and Byron, Byron's going to join us in like nine months, right, Byron? No. <laughs> no. Eventually. In your own time, Byron. Oh, don't I, I don't let this idiot tell me. Yeah, I'm not going to let this idiot tell me what to do <laughs> when it comes to that. Like I'll I just... said earlier, we're getting a puppy and that's enough for right now. Well, we'll so... be praying that that something else happens. No, I'm just kidding. No, I will not be. No, we won't. I appreciate that, Sophie. You're a good person, unlike my best friend Josiah. <laughs> oh, Byron, that's rude. Well, Sophie, so are uh, you, bud? Uh, no, it's loving. I'm just loving you. <laughs> uh, one, one last thing, Sophie. Unless you, I think you pretty much covered it. But I always like to just reemphasize one last thing. We get a bad rap as millennials for just complaining right? Just pointing out the flaws. Um, but maybe to wrap it up in a nice, neat little bow, what would you say to those that, that would maybe be either a millennial and questioning, okay, can I do this? Or what would you be saying to those that maybe have gone before us, the seasoned saints who are maybe those that would write us off as just, oh, they're just critical and cynical of everything. Like what is, if, if, there, if there could be just a final thought you would give, that's your encouragement to say, you know what? you know, we can, we can make church better and this is how, and this is why I'm doing this. What would your final thought be? I think that when it comes to addressing justice and communal systems or communal sin and systems of brokenness, that this is actually an area where young people in the church are leading us in really hopeful ways and that they're making a pathway for the kingdom of God here on earth. And that this is not an area where you can simply complain and critique without 
offering an alternative. And there are people that are doing that, that are super inspiring to me and that it doesn't have to be a complete change of every lifestyle practice that you have, but it's possible to be worshipful in many small practical ways in your daily life. And that that is a witness of the kingdom. That is a witness of the gospel. That is an invitation to all of us, whether we are young and idealistic and we're a seasoned saint or we're cynical or we're hopeful. There are ways for everyone to embody a Christian ethic in creative ways. And that gives me hope to see people doing that kind of work. Can I plug one example? Yeah, go for it. My friend Amy started learning about slave labor in the production of our clothing. And her question was, why isn't the church the most ethical place? Why aren't we offering this as an alternative uh, to a consumer driven way of life that we see reflected in our culture? And she started a company called Just Threads to make uh, more ethical clothing available to people at a reasonable price um, comparable to other clothing of its style and to support local ministries and charities with every purchase. And she saw the need and she started a company and it's small and it's a, you know, a volunteer run endeavor, but that is hopeful for me because that shows that people are not just complaining, but they are creating ways for other people to participate in the kingdom of God. I think we're going to have to look it up and put that as a link in our description now. So just threads, you said just threads.org. I think we'll verify and it'll be in the description of the podcast. We love sharing the, uh, sharing the love as much as we can, because that's something meaningful and worthwhile to engage with. Well, Sophie, I appreciated it. I, I love this conversation. And like you've already said, I've said, I probably could talk about this for far too long. <laughs> and I'm going to take little breaks here and there and give Byron grief because that's just the mode of podcasting <laughs> that I take. But thank you for joining us on this podcast. I have really appreciated um, all that you've shared with us and being willing to just take time to, to do so. So thank you for being on the podcast, Sophie. Yes, thank, thank you, you for, for joining invitation. us. That was awesome. Yeah, what? I <laughs> sorry, so talking I, over you. <laughs> I was gonna say later on in the week we're gonna hear more from you though, right? Yes, I will happily write a bit more about my faith community and some of the ways to engage this alternative ethic in practical ways. You can find that on our website, themillennialpastor.com. You can also find it on Facebook, the millennial pastor. You'll be able to find it on our Twitter and on our Instagram as well. If you want to hear more about what millennials think or you like hearing about the faith-based work they're doing in culture, then please join us next time on the Millennial Pastor Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josiah. And I'm your co-host, Byron. Join us next time.